The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. As we pray together, Christ, you are our living hope. We celebrate today that we do indeed have hope. We are not a hopeless people. We are people filled with hope, not because of our own religious works, not because we are good in and of ourselves. We have hope because of what you've done for us. And so we come today with hearts filled with gratitude and hearts filled with songs and prayers because salvation has been found in your name and in your sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. So today we come with challenges, yes, with difficulties in life, yes, with real sins with which we do battle on a daily basis, yes, indeed. But we don't fight a battle with hopelessness because you've told us the victory is won. We might fight, but one day we'll win. We might struggle today, but in the end, Lord, you bring us home to be with you and make all things that are wrong here right. Because of that, we have hope. We thank you for that, Jesus. We thank you for giving us hope. And we thank you for what you've done on our behalf and for the opportunity we have this morning to open up your word and to just uh, sort of immerse ourselves in what you've done and what that means. Speak to us through your word this morning, we pray. Open our eyes to understand the gospel. There's some who are here with us this morning for whom this is the first time they hear such a message. I pray that you would open their hearts to receive it, that they might be drawn to you and changed forever. Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. If you snuck in after we did the uh, greeting earlier, uh, there are in the back some handouts that you can grab uh, that have some fill-in-the-blanks for this morning. Uh, that's sort of unusual. I don't do that all the time, but I wanted you to have something to take home with you uh, this morning because of what we will deal with. If you were here last week, we um, sort of laid down a, a sort of a, if you will, a state of the church address. I guess you could call it going into a new year. It was my way of, of laying out for you sort of a challenge launching forth into 2019, hopefully identifying for you uh, some of the things that God has done well, that He's done and that we've celebrated Him doing in and among us in 2018, and yet also sort of throwing down a little bit of a gauntlet and saying, hey, we've got a challenge in front of us in 2019. That is to turn outward and to take the gospel into our city and into our region and ultimately into the world. And... um, it was a challenge to me, it was a challenge to you, it was a challenge to all of us corporately that, uh, that, there, that there are things in front of us, that there are, are, are hills to climb, that there are mountains that need to be conquered. And by the power and grace of Jesus, we will do that this year and at least launch ourselves in that direction. And, and so I thought, uh, having laid down a challenge last week that was sort of a heavy, direct uh, sort of a challenge, I wanted to follow up this morning with a message that was more of an equipping message. If I'm going to challenge you to do something as a pastor, I then need to give you the tools to be able to do it, or at least make sure that you understand 
what the tools are. And if the challenge is to penetrate the darkness around us, that those, those 47,000 people who live in our zip code, that 100,000 people who live within a five-mile radius of where we sit today with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might ultimately hear, believe, and be saved, then we need to have a clear picture of what exactly is the gospel. What is this gospel message that needs to be delivered? What is it that I'm asking you to say to your neighbor or to your friend or your, to your family member? What is it that they need to know? What is it that they need to hear in order to come into a saving relationship with the Jesus Christ? And so what we're doing in some ways this morning is a bit elementary, maybe to some of you, and yet it is absolutely critical that we understand what we're talking about this morning. And not only understand it, but that we're able to articulate it to someone else. And so what I'm going to do this morning and perhaps into next Sunday is just sort of lay out to you what is the gospel. We're going to be just thinking about that. What is the gospel? What is it that someone needs to hear, know, embrace, believe, respond to in order to be saved? In order to enter into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And so I'm going to give it to you sort of in expanded format uh, as I preach through it. But I've given you this handout so that you can take that home and you can sort of memorize at least in your mind sort of the, the pieces of this. This is not the only way to share the gospel. It is one way to share the gospel. And I'm not particularly interested in giving you methodology this morning. I want to give you the content. The content of what needs to be heard and understand and believed in order to be saved. And there are a lot of different ways that you can deliver this content. It can be delivered like we're going to do it this morning and maybe next week and link these sermons if you have that much time with somebody and you have an audience who will listen. Uh, but it also can be delivered in a much more compressed form when you're talking across the fence to your next door neighbor who you know doesn't know the Lord Jesus. And so uh, I want to walk through this this morning and perhaps next week and sort of clear through some of what's uh, floating around in the culture, particularly in the religious Christian culture around us, of what exactly is the gospel. Um, and so that's where I want to begin this morning. If I were to have done a poll this morning when you walked in the door and handed you a sheet of paper and said, would you just write down for me, what is the gospel? What do you think you would write? Let me ask you this way. Would that be an easy thing to do succinctly and quickly and with clarity, or would it be a hard thing for you to do, a challenging thing? How many of you think it would be easy? Raise a hand. If you're comfortable doing so. Okay. How many of you think that might be a challenge? Okay. We have some honest folks in here. I should have done it and you would have seen what a challenge it actually probably is to articulate the gospel in a quick, on-the-spot, easy sort of a way for someone to understand. I want you to be able, when you're talking across the fence with your neighbor and you realize that they don't know Jesus Christ, to have in your back pocket what is the gospel so that in that moment you can say it and they can hear it and you can call them to respond to it. So that's what this Sunday and next week is about. We, we walk through books of the Bible in depth, verse by verse, but sometimes I think it's easy for us to overlook what is the gospel, the basic message that someone needs to hear, and how can I embed that in my heart so that I can deliver it quickly to somebody when I run across him who I know doesn't know Jesus Christ. It's a challenge because in our culture, particularly even in the church culture around us, there are so many uh, sort of conflicting and confusing messages out there about what exactly is the gospel. I'm going to give you an example by video. This video is about six or seven years old now. It's by someone who was a very famous pastor in 
a sort of a different region of the U.S., a guy by the name of Rob Bell. Maybe you've heard of him somewhere before. I think he has a TV show with Oprah. Last I checked, uh, that's kind of his current gig. But he was a pastor of a very large church and had a very large following, has written multiple books, and, and has you know, influenced an awful lot of people under the sort of umbrella of Christianity. And I want you to un- listen to this, this clip that he did to promote one of his books a few years ago. And I want you to get a sense for what this pastor who is presenting himself as a Christian pastor in a Christian church is teaching people about the gospel. So listen to this clip or watch this clip and listen to it and process through it in your mind what he's saying. So let me ask you a question. After watching that three-minute clip, is the message of the gospel clearer or fuzzier? How many of you say clearer? How many of you say fuzzier? Okay. So a lot of folks... I'm not even fully sure what he was articulating other than to to question the nature of God, to question the goodness of God, to question the validity and the extent to which the the cross matters at all. He certainly was an outright denial of eternal judgment, punishment, hell, and such things. At least in Bell's case, those things are not a part of the gospel. The gospel is something other than that. Uh, in, a, in a recent interview, I say a recent interview, it's not actually recent, it's been about five years ago, someone asked him, how would you present the gospel on Twitter? And here's his quote. He said this, I would say that history is headed somewhere. The thousands of little ways in which you are tempted to believe that hope might actually be a legitimate response to the insanity of the world actually can be trusted. And the Christian story is that a tomb is empty, And a movement has actually begun that's been present, in a sense, all along in creation. And all those times when your cynicism was at odds with an impulse within you that said that this little thing might be about something bigger, those tiny little slivers may in fact be connected to something really, really big. Now look, I'm not going to dwell too much on that, other than to say I, I read a lot of sentences and I have absolutely no idea what any of that meant. I have no idea what any of that meant. My point is not to, to take a shot at some other pastor. That is not my point. Every pastor is fallible and we, we are subject to error. My point is to, to explain to you and to show you or to expose the issue that even when pastors are often asked what is the gospel, the answer is incomprehensible. And so uh, I want you to understand that that is not an isolated example. There are are lots and lots of people who sit in churches all across America, Christian churches today, who hear some version of something along those lines. And so the gospel comes across, while we use the term a lot, the message isn't always clear. It's oftentimes fuzzy and unclear and filled with a bunch of language that nobody makes sense of and understands. And so I want us to drill down to what is the message of the Bible? What is the gospel? How is it, what is the clear message that's taught in Scripture? What are the basics that someone needs to understand to receive the Lord Jesus? That's what we're going to do this morning. Some other folks that, uh, that, that, are, that are folks a little closer to sort of our theological world that have uh, posed answers to this question. John Piper, when asked what is the gospel, said this. The, go- the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over his enemies, so that there's now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. I don't disagree with anything that Piper says there. It's a good answer. 
On another occasion, he answered it this way, and this is in, if you like John Piper and you have read much of his stuff, this is very Piperish answer. He said, the gospel is the good news that the everlasting and ever-increasing joy of the never-boring, ever-satisfying Christ is ours freely and eternally by faith in the sin-forgiving death and hope-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you like hyphenated words, you'll love that definition. But I think a more succinct and clearer definition is one put out by Nine Marks in a recent publication that says this, the gospel is the good news about what Jesus Christ has done to reconcile sinners to God. That is what the gospel is. At its most basic level, it is the good news about what Jesus Christ has done to reconcile sinners to God. That is what the meaning of the word the gospel is. The good news is, in essence, the word itself means good news. But when we talk about the gospel in relation to what the New Testament teaches, we're talking about the good news, a message about what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done in order to reconcile sinners to God. It's as as basic as you can get and as clear as you can get. And that's what we're going to be looking at. What is that message? What is the message that's good news? What is this message about Christ and what He's done in order to reconcile sinners to God? There are two dangers that we need to avoid when we start thinking through the gospel and start trying to articulate it to other people. On the one hand, we run the danger of adding to the gospel. We need to be careful that we don't add to the gospel more than what the text of Scripture tells us the gospel is. There are a lot of ways that we can do this. We can add to the gospel by adding into it uh, works and rituals and Things, human things that someone needs to do in order to be a Christian. We're going to find that at the heart of the gospel message is a wonderful, freeing, joyful message that salvation comes to us by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ apart from any human works. The heart of the gospel is you can't earn your salvation. You can't work your way toward it. It comes to us by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But often you'll hear people present a gospel message that seems to indicate, whether overtly or subtly, that there are human works that have to be added into this equation in order to be saved. Religious works, good works, and so forth. Those things can be overt in the sense that somebody might say, hey, you need to do this in order to be a Christian. They come in more subtle forms, like the ones that I heard when I was growing up in a a Baptist church, that... You have to, I I grew up as a kid thinking that the only way you could ever become a Christian was if on a Sunday morning at the end of a sermon, you walk to the front of the church and you talk to the preacher who was down front and you signed a card and then you got baptized in water. And that was the only way you, that was, you had to do all of those things in order to be a Christian. Now, I don't know that anybody intentionally gave that message. I think it was a subtle way of adding to the gospel message. No, I don't have to walk to the front of a church in order to be a Christian. I can come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in my home, in the street, in my workplace, across the backyard in a conversation with a neighbor. Uh, I don't have to do any of those sort of human mechanical pieces in order to become a Christian. But it is a way of adding to the gospel by saying here are mechanics that are particular or prayers that are specific or works or rituals that have to be done so we can add to the gospel and we want to avoid that. Another thing that we can do, though, that's a danger on the other end of that is taking away from the gospel or diluting the gospel message. Uh, Sort of cutting out of it critical pieces that one needs to understand and sort of filtering the whole gospel message down to, well, if you want to be a Christian, you just need to believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Okay, you're a Christian. Do I believe that people need to believe in order to be saved? Sure. The New Testament teaches we have to believe in order to be saved. 
But the message of the gospel is much more robust than that. There's more to it than that. And it needs to be fleshed out more than that. So when we shortchange the gospel like that, we're actually taking away from it and diluting from it sort of critical pieces. And so what I want to do uh, this morning is just sort of walk you, begin to walk you through what are the critical pieces that all need to be sort of at some level understood, received, believed, and committed to in order to be a Christian. And again, uh, I'll just give you the caveat. There are various levels at which we can understand these things or need to understand these things in order to be saved. The gospel is clear enough and simple enough that a child can understand it, receive it, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Um, And so it needs to be understood that uh, it it can be simple. All right, so what is the gospel? Let's walk through it. Um, For me, I, I think the gospel begins with God. Anytime I want to present the gospel, when I come across somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the first thing I want to sort of talk to them about is the reality that there is a God. I think it begins there. Now, a lot of gospel tracts that you'll find sort of floating around in the world don't begin with God. They begin with with man. They begin with, hey, uh, uh, there's a wonderful, good plan for your life. Don't you want to not go to hell and go to heaven? And it's a conversation that begins with, with the person or the man or you. In my estimation, I think it's better just to begin with God because salvation is ultimately a work of God. It ultimately begins with God. And if we don't start there with an affirmation that there is a God, that He created everything and that He owns everything, that He's holy and that He has certain demands that must be met and that He has a right to make those demands, then we, we, we have to uh, uh, we, we sort of shortchange ourselves on the, on the whole picture. So I think we begin with God. We begin with the fact that there is a God, that He is the creator and owner of everything. In order for a person to be saved, they have to believe that there's a God. That there is a God. You cannot reject the concept of a God and and be saved and be a Christian. You have to believe that there's a God. And that He's the creator and owner of everything. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2 sort of flesh this out. The psalmist writes, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Genesis 1 begins with the very first phrase in the Bible. is in the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. The whole Bible begins with the reality that there's a God. It starts there. And so if you reject that piece, then the rest of the message really falls short. You can't receive it. Because it all depends upon the fact that there is a God. And not only is there a God, but He's a God who creates. He's a God who creates and owns. He made everything, and because He made everything, it all belongs to Him. He, 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 he made it, and it's His. The universe and everything in it, the psalmist writes, belongs to God. He is, and He made, and He owns. Psalm 50, verses 9 through 12, in this wonderful psalm, the psalmist writes... This is a psalm from God's perspective. He said, I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all that's in it. It's a clear and direct declaration from God that He owns everything. It belongs to Him. He doesn't need to ask anyone else for permission. He doesn't need to borrow anything from anybody else. He made everything, and He owns everything that's here. In Isaiah 44, Isaiah records, verse 24, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who forms you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things. 
who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. You see, God is almost going to extreme lengths here to say, hey, I made it all. I did it alone, and I did it by myself. There's no one like me. There's no one like me. I stand alone and above all things. Of course, when you get to the end of the Bible, the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, and you get to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, we see sort of worship around the throne of God in the heavens. And, and, and what are the angels singing? They're singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things. And by Your will they were created and have their being. The Gospel begins with the reality that there's a God. And that He made everything. And that He owns everything. That everything belongs to Him and everyone is accountable to Him. He is not a, a God who is a watchmaker, who sort of just uh, uh, created everything like a big machine and wound it all up and set it on its course and then moved on to another project somewhere. But He is a God who made all things, who holds all things together, and who is still intimately involved with His creation. Beyond that, He's a God who speaks. He hasn't left us in the fog about who He is. He hasn't left us trying to figure out what He's like. He's spoken to us in giving us His Word. And we saw when we started Hebrews a few weeks back, in the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, it begins with what? This idea that God, long ago, in ways past, He spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us through His Son. And so He's a God who speaks, who spoke things into creation, who speaks to us through His Word, who has spoken through us and once and finally through His Son. Well, what about this God who created everything and owned everything? What is He like? Well, the Bible tells us that he, He's holy. That he's holy. Peter declares this in 1 Peter 1.16, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. This is an Old Testament quote. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, Isaiah sees a, a vision of heaven, and he sees heaven, and he sees the angels. And what are they singing, and what are they calling out? Well, Isaiah says they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. What does that mean? Well, holy means, it has a couple of meanings. It means set apart. He's completely unlike anything else. He is completely set apart from the rest of His creation in some sense. And it also means that He is perfect in every way. He's perfect in every way. There are no imperfections in God. Everything that He says is perfectly righteous and good and true. Everything that He does is perfectly righteous and good and true. There is no unrighteousness. There is no injustice. There is no darkness. There is no failure. There is no fault in God. He is perfect in every way. But here's where the nose turns a little bit to the right. This God who created and owned everything and who is holy requires perfect obedience to His law. He requires perfect obedience to His law. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says these words, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, the Bible declares on multiple fronts that God, because of His perfection and holiness, that He doesn't associate Himself with unholiness. He doesn't lock himself into relationship with beings that are unholy. And so Jesus says something like this. Now, if we had time to spend in Matthew chapter 5, and I don't want to take the side trail this morning, um, and you can do that on your own, Jesus is declaring that God's standard is, is, is perfect holiness. 
And he's doing that not because he believes that those who hear it can achieve perfect holiness, but because he wants them to understand how unholy they, in fact, are and how wide the gulf is between where they stand and where God stands. Habakkuk chapter 1, the Old Testament prophet, verse 13 says of God, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. We need to understand this about God. God is not the great granddaddy in the sky who overlooks sin, who just says, oh, no, no, don't worry about that. I understand. You, you messed up. No big deal. Just try to do better later. That is not what God is like. God does not overlook sin. He does not wink at sin. He does not just act like sin is no big deal. He doesn't just pat us on the back and say, go try to be better. He says, indeed, your sin is dreadfully awful. It is wholly unrighteous. And as we're going to see, it separates you from me. Something has to happen. Something has to happen between me and you. So God, there's a God. He's a creator, an owner of everything. He's holy. That means He demands perfection. And perfect obedience is what's required. So we know something about God. There's much more to be said about God. But we need to know at least that much to understand the gospel. What about man? What about us? What about people? What about the person you're talking to? What do they need to understand about themselves, about all of us? Well, we need to understand something about who we are. That we are creatures who are created in His image. We need to understand that God created men in His image. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Well, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Also, we could do a couple of sermons just on that issue alone, but I want to summarize it to say that there's something within us that's a reflection of who He is. There's something within us that's a reflection in a unique way of who He is. We're made different than the rest of the creatures that He made. We're made different than the rest of His creation. There's something within us that is a reflection of who He is and what He's like. To look at the sun... Jesus, or to look at a human son, is to see something of the reflection of his father in him. You, 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 you know, I can do that with your families, right? Usually if I, if I walk around, I see kids, I may not remember their name, but I can look at them, and by their appearance, I can say, oh yeah, that's one of those Fadley kids, I remember them, because there's a, a resemblance, there's a reflection of their parents in them. And, and so... In some sense, this is the essence of what is being talked about here when he says that people were made in the image of God. We're made unique from all the rest of creation, but there's something within us that's a reflection of the one who made us. And the reason he made us is that we might love and worship and enjoy him. God made us that we might love and worship and enjoy him. Listen, just sort of erase from your mind the idea that somehow God was just, that God needed us. That somehow God was just this lonely being in heaven who was just sort of kicking around looking for something to do and he got so lonely and bored. Man, I, my life is just not complete. I need to make something or some people, you know, to sort of fill up this gap in my life. I mean, I don't know that anybody would say it in that sort of a caricature, but that sort of a thought process is out there and you hear it articulated even around Christian circles that somehow God is just up in heaven and He was lonely and He was bored and so He made people in order that we might somehow fulfill something in Him that's missing. That is not how God is. God is perfectly self-sufficient in all ways. 
He did not need to make people in order to fill some gap in His existence. He made us in order that we might love Him, in order that we might worship Him, in order that we might enjoy Him. The problem, though, comes into the picture when we look a little more closely at ourselves, right? There's a God, and He is, and He made us all. He made us to love and to worship and to enjoy Him. And the Bible tells us the problem is all of us, every single one of us, all mankind has chosen to rebel against Him. Chosen to rebel against Him and set ourselves up as our own gods. We want to define right and wrong for ourselves. We want to live by our own standards. We want to live for our own pleasure. We want to sort of be the captain of our own ship. We want to do our own thing. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to submit to any authority. We want to just live autonomous lives that are filled with a pursuit of our own pleasures and our own satisfaction. And so in spite of the fact that He made us, and in spite of the fact that He created us to enjoy Him, to know Him, to love Him, to worship Him, we've said, no thanks. I'll live for myself. I'll do things my own way. I won't live for your pleasure. I'll live for my own. Romans chapter 1, we see this very clearly. Verse 21, verse 25. Paul writes, For although they, being men, knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. All of us have done that. In some way, in some shape or form, we're boarded into this world with a sort of a natural bent to rebel and do our own thing. And given the opportunity to do those things and to actually act on that impulse, we all choose to act upon it. And we all, in our own ways, in various degrees, choose to reject what God has called us to and to do our own thing, to set up our own rules, to pursue our own pleasures. All of us have broken God's law. Every one of us. All men have broken God's law. Also in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, it's an Old Testament quote, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every human being, every one of us, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Old Testament prophet said it this way, Isaiah 53, verse 6, We all... Like sheep have done what? Have gone astray. Each of us, we've we've turned to our own way. Is there anyone that's excluded from that description? Not according to Isaiah. He uses the word all. And each of us. There's not a one of us in this room. There's not a one of us in this world that has not done this. That has not been a sheep that's gone astray in some way, shape, or form, or perhaps in many ways, shapes, or forms. All of us have broken God's law. We all stand guilty before God. And what's worse, that rebellion, that choosing to do things our own way, that going astray, that turning to our own way, has some pretty remarkable consequences in in our relationship with God. In fact, what it does is... It separates us from Him. It separates us from Him. Isaiah 59, 2. Isaiah says it this way. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you. 
So the God who made us in His image to enjoy Him, to love Him, to worship Him, to follow Him, we've rejected and we've chosen our own way. Every one of us has gone our own way. And the consequence of that is that that choosing and that turning and that going our own way has created a gap or a chasm or a gulf, whatever you want to call it, that has separated us from Him. He is holy and we are unholy, every single one of us. And the results are a severing of that relationship between He and me. You. Because He's holy and He's just, He must punish sin. And because He's eternal, that punishment is an eternal punishment. What Rob Bell rejects, an eternal punishment torment apart from Him forever when life is over. Now I understand. I understand that, uh, that the idea of a payment for sin, that the idea of hell is not particularly in vogue right now. But the Bible declares that there is a payment due for our sin. There is a wage that's due. And it's death. Romans 6.23, the clearest picture here for the wages of sin is death the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus what we've earned by our sin is an eternal death an eternal separation from the God who made us to enjoy him who made us that we might be the beneficiaries of all the good things that he brings to those who are made in his image when we reject him when we stray from Him, when we turned our own way, the consequence of that is that we now have a debt that we owe, a wage that's due. It's death. Make the picture even worse, our good works and our good intentions can't save us. Our good works and our good intentions cannot save us. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 Speaking of Christ, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. We celebrated that in a song a little while ago. His mercy is more. My sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. All throughout the New Testament, the, the, the declaration is consistent that our good works and our good intentions don't save us. That we are saved by grace, that we are saved through faith, that it is not of our works unless any one of us should boast. Good works can't save us. You need to understand your religious works can't save you. Going to church doesn't save you. Doing religious things doesn't save you. Praying, giving money to the congregation and to the work of the kingdom around the world does not save you. Just sort of conforming to the the moral atmosphere within the body of Christ does not save you. Your good works cannot save you. And good intentions don't save us either. There are some very morally, at least on the outside appearance, good people who do not know Christ and are not saved. There are an awful lot of people in the world with very good intentions who will die and spend an eternity in hell apart from Christ. Our good works can't save us. Our good intentions can't save us. 
in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, Isaiah explains a little bit why this is. He says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. What Isaiah is, is getting at there in that particular message is this. Look, you may do a lot of good things, a lot of righteous-looking things, but even on my best day, when I'm doing my best works, my best works are often polluted by impure motives and impure thoughts and impure attitudes and so on and so forth. Even my best things that I have to offer on my best days are still not pure and perfect and good. There is a... There is a a stain that runs deeper than all of that. That corrupts even the best of the things that I do to make them fall short. So far, it's not a good news message, is it? It doesn't sound like gospel. It sounds like bad news, right? It sounds like if we stop the message here, it's bad news. Because right here, that's bad news. If that's the situation and there's not more to say, then we're all doomed. We're all condemned. And we're all going to hear the judge at the end of time declare guilty. Away from me, I never knew you. But praise God, the gospel doesn't end there. Because the Bible tells us that God understanding our scenario and understanding our situation did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He sent His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save us, to rescue us. And so this is where the bad news turns into good news. The Lord Jesus Christ is fully God. He also became fully man. Second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity is born into human flesh. We just really celebrated this over the Christmas season as we thought through, as we sang through the story of, of Christmas where the, the second person of Trinity wraps himself into human flesh, is born as a man, yet fully God, fully man, at one and the same time. He lives a perfect life. In every sense, a human life. Had a human birth, a human body, human emotions, human needs. He needed to sleep, he needed to eat, he needed to drink, all of the same things that the rest of us need. He experienced joy and sadness, pain and grief. He understood temptation, experienced that happiness, all of the things that we experience. All the things that we experience in being human, he experienced in being human as well. Yet he did it in utter perfection. A sinless and perfect life. Hebrews tells us that in Hebrews chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. He lived a perfect life. He faced every temptation that we face. And ultimately, He died on a cross as our substitute to purchase our salvation. That's good news, isn't it? The wages of sin is death. Christ paid for that on our behalf. He willingly gave up His life in our place. John chapter 10, verses 17 and following, listen to what Jesus says. He says, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it back up again. This command I received from my Father. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love for us. 
that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The whole purpose of Christ being born, the whole purpose of Christ living a sinless life was that He might go to the cross and that He might die in our place, pay the wage that we owe, the debt that we owed that we could never pay, to pay it on our behalf. He endured the fullness of the Father's wrath in our place. He substituted Himself for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. God made Him who had no sin of His own to be our sin, that we might in turn become His righteousness. When Christ goes to the cross and He willingly lays down His life, He endures the full wrath of the Father on our sin that He takes upon Himself, and He imputes to us His righteousness that we might enjoy His reward. That's a pretty darn good transaction, isn't it? Now the bad news is turning into good news, right? Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that I'm a sinner who's separated from God by nature and by choice, and that there's nothing I can do to to alter that state of affairs? but that God rectified that for me by sending His only Son to take my sin from me, to die for it, that I might have the reward of His righteous life. That's good news. That's really, really good news. We need to understand that Jesus Christ did that. And that in order to do that, He literally died. He was literally buried. Those are important pieces. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and following. Once you were alienated from God, speaking to believers here, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. There is no gospel apart from Jesus Christ dying for our sin and being buried. But that's not the end of the Gospel because the Bible tells the Christ who died on a cross as our substitute to purchase our salvation that something remarkable happened three days later. That He rose from the, from the dead and today, this very moment, He is alive and well. Right? That's part of the Gospel message that we have to understand. That Christ died for our sins and that He rose victorious from the grave three days later. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Two points that matter about that. Number one, it's clear evidence that His death was sufficient to pay the full price for our sin. By rising from the dead, He makes clear and evident and visible for all to know and understand that the death isn't the end for those who place their faith and trust in Him. The way to die and yet live is to place your faith in the One who died and now lives. And it's also to remind us that He lives and He rules right now. That He's still alive. That he's still, according to Hebrews, holding things, all things together in the world. And one day he's going to return. And he's going to return to judge men. Acts chapter 10. This is Peter preaching. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day. He is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living 
and the dead. The one who came, the one who took on our sin, who died in our place and who rose from the dead is going to return. And He's going to hold accountable all who have ever lived. And we will all give an account for our lives. Every single one of us. And there will be a judgment toward eternity. Have you received what I've done on your behalf? Submitted your life to me or not? That's the pivotal point of that judgment. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels. And then He will reward each one according to what He has done. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 7, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. Shut out. So the bad news turns into good news. You are not in a situation that's unredeemable. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what sort of flavor your rebellion against your Creator is. It doesn't matter how many sins you've committed. It doesn't matter what types of sins you've committed. It doesn't matter what quantity of sins that you've committed. It doesn't matter what your rebellion looks like. The reality is that we all are in the same sort of condition, and that's a rebellious condition. And all of those sort of things that we tend to use to judge other people, really in the big picture, have absolutely no meaning. Because even if I judge someone else's sins worse than mine, at the end of the day, my sins and their sins earn the same wage, eternal death, and put us in the same shape, separated from God, positioned at enmity with Him. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came and lived the perfect life that we could never live. And He did it in order that He might take on our sin and grant to us His righteousness. Well, our time is up. But I do want to fill in your blanks. What do you have to do? What has to happen in order for what Christ did in our place to become effective for my personal life? Just put the whole, the whole, uh, the whole slide up there, Dave, due to time. We'll just walk through it. There are people who, if they have blanks, they'll go nuts all afternoon if we don't fill them in. Right? I know you people. What do you do? You have to turn from all that offends God. You just turn. You make a turn in your life. You say, I've lived this way. And you know what? In light of what Christ has done for me, in light of what I understand about God and about myself and about the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm turning. The Bible uses the word repent. It just simply means to turn around and go a different way. Just turn. A good example, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30 and following. This is the Old Testament speaking of this. Therefore, O house of Israel, I'll judge you each according to his ways, declares the Lord. Listen to the language here. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all your offenses you've committed. 
Get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die? That's the question that God would ask. Why would you die? You don't have to die for your sins. Why would you do that? Christ has died on your behalf. Just simply turn. Turn from the way you're living. Turn around and go the other way. Instead of pursuing your own selfish lifestyle and your own pleasures in rebellion against God, turn toward the Lord Jesus Christ and pursue Him. Turn away from a life of rebellion and turn toward a life of obedience. Count the cost of following Him. This is a part that's often excised from sort of most gospel presentations. Count the cost. There's a cost to following Christ. You don't pay the cost in order to be a believer, but the result will often be that things change in your life, and sometimes not for the best, at least initially. Jesus declared this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and following, for He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, you probably know this, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after Me. It's just another way of saying, I need to die to the old way I used to live. Consider myself dead to myself and alive to pursue Christ. Then plead for Christ to save and trust Him to do it. Isaiah said it this way, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He's near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and He'll have mercy on him. And to our God, for He will freely pardon. I want you, let's just say that verse together. Would you say it? Are you awake enough to say it with me out loud? Let's just read that together. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. Now that is good news. That is good news. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter how long you've lived in your sin. It doesn't matter what kind of sin it is. It doesn't matter the quantity, the shape, the flavor, the type, anything. If you will simply turn to the Lord, He'll have mercy on you, and He will freely pardon you. That's good news. That's good news. That's good news. What does my neighbor need to know? What does our city need to know in order to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior to be saved? They need to know these things that we've talked about. They need to know who God is. They need to understand who they are in relation to Him. They need to understand who Christ is and what He came to do. And they need to know what they need to do in response to that. Do you understand that this morning? That's what the Gospel is. That is the message, the good news message that the world needs to hear. There is hope. There is hope for people. There is hope for humanity. But our hope is not in our ingenuity, in our good works, in our own intentions, but it's in what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And our only hope is to turn and place our faith in the Lord Jesus. There's no magic prayer that you need to pray in order to do that. There's no sort of church ritual that has to take place in order for that transaction to take place. All that needs to happen is you and your own heart and your own mind need to, between you and the Lord, say to Him in your own words and your own way, God, I understand who you are, and I understand who I am in relation to you. I'm a sinner who's chosen his own way, and I've rebelled against you. And I know that apart from what you've done for me, I have no hope. I can't be good enough. I can't be religious enough. But I know that you've sent your only son, Jesus, to die in my place. And you've told me that if I will turn from my 
wicked ways and my selfish pursuits believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and entrust my life to Him, He will save me. He will freely pardon me. He will cleanse me from all sin. And He will redeem my soul. And so, this very day, I want to do that. You don't even have to say it the way I exactly said it. Just say it in your own words. And believe it in your heart. May that be the exact attitude of your heart. If you do that, the Bible says you will be saved. In that very moment, you will be saved. You'll be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will no longer be a slave to sin, but you'll be free to obey Him. And He will transform you and make the old person that you used to be die and a new person come to life that has new desires and new passions to follow after Him. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've just heard what all of the implications of that are. You've just heard what you need to know in order to be a believer. And so I want to say to you this morning, if you're not, and you have not done that, you have absolutely no excuse. None. At this very moment, you stand accountable before the one who made you and against whom you've rebelled. Right now, as we wrap up this time together, you need to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to turn from your sin and embrace Him. Place your trust in Him to save you. If you've come here this morning and you've thought, hey, just going to church and being a good person is going to save you, you thought just being religious and doing religious things is enough, you need to understand it's not enough. It could never be enough. You could spend your whole life doing good and religious things and never be enough. Your only hope is to turn to Jesus. Believe that what He's done for you is enough. Submit your life to Him today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You for this day. Thank You for the opportunity to just make clear what it is to be a Christian. To make clear the Gospel, the good news. Lord, I pray that every one of us in this room who's listening has at some point looked in the mirror of our own lives and understood exactly who we are in relation to You. That we've dispensed with any illusion that we're good people who are good enough. That we've dispensed any illusion that we can earn our way into Your kingdom by just doing more good things than bad things. Hoping that in the end, that all the good stuff is going to get weighed on the scale and all the bad stuff is going to be on the other side. And as long as the good stuff outweighs the bad by just a little, the gates will open. And we'll spend forever with You. Oh, the world loves to believe that, Lord. But the Gospel blows away any thoughts of such things. Now, we know who You are, God. And we know who we are. And we know that our only hope is what You've done for us in sending Your only begotten Son that we might believe on Him and have eternal life. I pray for everyone in this room that that would be the reality of their life right this moment. For the one who doesn't know You, Lord Jesus, as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would receive You right now in this very moment. Embed this message in our hearts, Lord, that we might know it, believe it, be able to communicate it for Your glory, we pray. Amen. Would you stand?